I think uh, many, if not all of you know, that I used to live in Los Angeles. And I remember the nights were never really dark. You know, there were just too many people. There were just too many cars, too many stores, too many houses, and too many streetlights that filled the night sky with a kind of a glow. And then I came to Fallbrook. And I remember that one of the very first things that struck me was how dark the night sky was in Fallbrook. It actually became really dark. You know, it's the kind of thing, if you're used to it, sometimes you go camping to a very remote and deserted place, and you realize, away from the glow of civilization, the nights get really, really dark. It gets even pitch black. And the problem with pitch black darkness, you know, of course, once the novelty wears off, the problem with pitch black darkness is that it is debilitating. You can't do anything in the darkness. It's terrifying because you don't know what lurks in that darkness. And it is dangerous because you can't see the road ahead and you can't avoid obstacles. Now, that is the world of ancient Israel. That is the world as Israel experienced it. And that is the reason why their present misery is described as darkness and God's grace and salvation as light. And so the first thing we are confronted with are light and glory, light and glory. Now, um, some of you may know this. Uh, the Old Testament Hebrew language, particularly the Hebrew language of the Old Testament scriptures, often uses what is called parallelism. And parallelism is a way of uh, writing, a way of expressing basically one essential idea, but through two different ways. And so you will read this often in the Old Testament scriptures. One verse of the Bible is really essentially communicating one essential idea, but the verse is divided into two halves, with each half of the verse uh, making a distinct uh, uh, statement. And so if you look at uh, verse 1, you see that it is divided into two halves. And the first half of verse 1 is, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And then comes a parallel statement in the second half of verse 1. And the second half says, And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So verse, uh, the first half, Arise and shine, for your light has come. And second half, And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. These two halves, these two distinct statements, is really conveying one essential idea, meaning the light that rescues God's people from the debilitating, terrifying, and dangerous darkness has come. And that light has come in the form of the glory of the Lord that has risen upon you. 
And so the thing to consider this morning is this. What is that darkness against which the glory of the Lord is the answer? What is that darkness that Israel was experiencing for which the light, the glory of the Lord is the answer? The first uh, thing to recognize is that that darkness is, first of all, is the darkness of personal sin. Now, the Bible often speaks about the glory of God, and it is a vast and a wonderful topic. And I think in order for us to focus a little bit how the glory of God is an answer to the darkness of our sin, it is really helpful to turn to the book of Romans and hear what Paul has to say about glory. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this verse is very often thought to mean that sinners have failed to meet the standards of God's law. So many people read this verse and they, they understand by the glory of God the law of God. That's what sinners have fallen short of, the law of God. Now, God's law is glorious. And sinners have failed its demands. There are no questions about that. But when we observe and recognize how Paul uses glory uh, elsewhere in the rest of the book of Romans, we realize that Paul is saying something different. When Paul says in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul is not saying all have sinned and have failed to meet the standards of God's law. True as that may be, that's not quite what Paul is saying. Because what Paul is saying, in view of what Paul says about glory later, is something like this. God created man, Adam and Eve, male and female, and placed man in Eden, the paradise. And in Eden, Adam and Eve were richly, amazingly blessed. But as we think about their existence in Eden before sin came into the picture, we realize as blessed as they were, their lives were not perfect. In what sense? In this sense. It turns out even before sin came into the picture, the life that Adam and Eve enjoyed was the kind of life that could come to an end. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? And it turns out the relationship that they enjoyed with God in, in Eden, it turns out, was the kind of relationship that could be broken. And as it turns out, it was broken. And it turns out that their access to God in Eden 
was one which that could be revoked. And it was revoked. And it turns out that their presence, their right to enjoy the garden, the privilege was one which could be taken away. And it was taken away, and they were exiled. But when we read about God's design, we realize that God's intention for man was to reach and obtain that kind of life that would never end, eternal life. And God's intention for mankind was to have peace in his presence that can never be disrupted or broken. And so in the middle of the garden, there are two trees standing right next to each other. One, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right next to it, the tree of life. And so that was teaching Adam and Eve that there is a life to come which will never end. There is a fellowship with God that will come which will never be broken, but it will be theirs through obedience. And that was God's design. You see, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve would receive eternal life and eternal peace with God. And through obedience, man would reach glory. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man, Adam, and we in him, we rebelled and we rejected that glory, and instead we found death. But then Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is where Paul is talking about what Jesus has done. That through Jesus, the hope of glory is once again ours. And then Paul continues in chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christians, we may suffer, and we may suffer greatly in this life and in this world, and yet we look forward to something that will never be taken away, that is glory. And Paul continues in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, and this is where Paul is talking about election, predestination, and election. And he says... That God, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The topic of predestination and election is something that often elicits or brings out uh, anger and complaint from people. But when Paul explains predestination and election, he tells us that God chose some people, undeserving, fallen sinners, but in mercy and grace, he chose them in order that they may receive 
glory in order that in Jesus Christ they may receive the gift of life that will never end, that can never end, in order that through Jesus Christ they may have relationship with God that can never be disrupted, in order that they may enjoy the access to God's presence that can never be taken away, glory. That's what God intended for Adam, which he forfeited, but that is what we gain through Jesus. So I think we can see at this point when Paul says in Romans 3.23 that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and then goes on to say that God has set the hope of glory before us, Paul doesn't have in mind the law of God as if to say through Jesus our greatest blessing to look forward to is the law. That's not what he is saying. He is saying that through Jesus, God's true and the best intentions for us, through Jesus, the treasure, the blessing that were forfeited have become ours. And so when we keep this in mind, and then we read in Isaiah, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We realize that that is an answer to our, the darkness of our sinfulness. And Isaiah is talking about, and he is speaking of God's sin-conquering grace that gives eternal life and peace to sinners. That is to say, God graciously graciously gives as a free gift what Adam and Eve and we in them failed to earn. But that which we failed to earn, that which we forfeited, God gives to us as a free gift. And so light and glory, the glory of God that rises upon God's people is first of all, is an answer to the darkness of sin. Next, we come and we think about how God makes distinction. God makes a distinction. Because we were asking the question, what is that darkness against which the glory of the Lord is an answer? And the first answer was that the glory of God is the answer to the darkness of our sin. And we look at the second answer. The glory of God is an answer to our sorrows in this world. Now, we have seen this as we have studied now 60 chapters of Isaiah. We've seen this over and over again, how the nation of Israel, they are, and they were suffering the consequences of their own sins. They rebelled against their covenant Lord. They rebelled against their true God and chose to serve the false gods of the nations. And what do they have to show for it? They became enslaved and they were in bondage. They were taken as exiles. They lost everything. But then, Realize this, as the nation of Israel suffered the consequences of our own sins, in that nation of Israel, there were truly godly 
faithful and righteous people. These people who were loyal to God's covenant, these people who worshiped God with their sincere heart, even they were caught up in the mess of Israel's sin. That is to say, Israel's sins made her the nation the prey of powerful Gentile empires. But the righteous people, and of course when I say righteous people, when the Old Testament talks about righteous people, it's not that they were sinless people, but they had aligned themselves to the God of righteousness. And as the nation was suffering the consequence of their, her sins, even the godly, the faithful, the righteous people were among those who suffered the consequences of Israel's sins. Some of them lost their lives as the foreign empires invaded Israel. Some of them were also exiled and taken as captives. Now, of course, you remember Daniel. What sin did he commit that deserved his exile and bondage? Nothing. Daniel and others like him were faithful, loyal, and yet they were also caught up in the sins of the nation. And they suffered with the rest of Israel, and they seemed no different in their faith. Faith as in F-A-T-E. What happened to them seemed no different from what happened to the true idolaters, the rebels. But here we see that while God in his mysterious providence, he did not spare his saints from the turmoils of this sin-cursed world, yet he knows them, he cares for them, and he makes a distinction in their favor. So look at verse 2. For behold... Darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Even though the whole world should fall short of God's glory and suffer judgment and wrath, God will bring his people to a different end. And that's how we understand what follows, which is a long and glorious reversal of the fortunes of God's people. And we read how the nations and peoples from near and far come bringing tribute. And we read the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Why? Verse 9. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Now, we need to understand that this is not a promise to elevate Israel as a political entity over other nations. Now, there are many people who read passages like this exactly in that way, and they're waiting for the earthly political nation of Israel 
to rise over other nations. But that's not God's promise here, because God's promise is rather for the people over whom his glory rises. And the people over whom God's glory comes, though they are for the moment dismissed and suffer humiliation, because God loves them, because God's glory has risen upon them, they will be honored. That is to say, the honor will not come to the earthly nation of Israel as a political entity, but the honor will come to God's true Israel, the church. That is to say, this is about us, Christians. Christians who today are caught up in the turmoils of the sinful world. We who are dishonored in this world, we who cry daily to be delivered from darkness. One day, in the fullness of time, God's glory will rise upon us, and one day, we who are dishonored, humiliated, dismissed, will be honored and will be made beautiful. And that becomes very clear when we compare what Isaiah says in this chapter against what we read in the book of Revelation. In this chapter, chapter 60, verse 19, we read, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And then compare what we read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What city are we talking about here? If we read that same chapter, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, we read the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We are not talking about the Jerusalem of earth. We are talking about the true Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb that descends from heaven. And in that city, there will no longer be sun or moon to light the city because the glory of God gives it light. And then once again, Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So do you see what is happening here? The promises of Isaiah chapter 60, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. That promise is a promise to be fulfilled not for earthly Israel, but for the Lamb's bride, you. And I, 
And that brings us to the last point, which is the everlasting light. Once again, Isaiah chapter 60. Hear this, loved ones. This is all about you. And this is all about me. Because Isaiah chapter 60 is God's promises to be fulfilled for us in Christ. For now, we who have aligned ourselves with the God of righteousness, for now we hold him as our covenant Lord. For now, we who worship Jesus as our Savior, for now we suffer and we wait. And for now, we live in darkness. Now, you might say, well, Ken, you're just awfully pessimistic. You know, there's such, so many wonderful things about the world. I don't think of the world as darkness. Well, you know, I'm not being pessimistic because if we say that we are not in darkness, then the promise of God's light is neither comforting nor useful. You see, as soon as we got ourselves in the mindset, the world is a wonderful place to be. There's nothing wrong in this world. Or maybe there are a few things wrong in this world, but overall, not too bad. I'm doing fine. As soon as we have that kind of a mindset, what we are really saying is the promise of God's light and glory. You know, it's just not for me. It just, it doesn't speak to me. It's just not relevant to me. It doesn't do anything for me. That's what we are saying. That's why you see, it's more than about being pessimistic or being positive. It's just reality. We are in darkness. We experience darkness, of course, in our personal lives. And I'm not just talking about sin either. Yes, sin is a darkness that we all understand. But there is the darkness of not being whole. You know, being frail. And as we get older, learning to let go of things more and more. You know, that is also kind of darkness. The many things that we suffer that that break our hearts, that also is a kind of darkness. And we experience darkness in our personal lives and in the world at large. A mad dictator threatens the world with nuclear weapons. What is that if not darkness? A mad sinner, I'm talking about you and me. We think we can keep saying no to God. That's as much madness and as darkness as a Russian dictator. We live in darkness. We experience darkness. But as God's redeemed and cherished people, we also long for light. And we cry out for darkness to be over. And that is what God has promised. We will not always cry out in darkness 
because Jesus, he died and he rose. Jesus was a servant. Now he is the Lord. And he has won glory for us. And that is why we can look forward with joy and know that this promise is God's promise to us. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. And as people who hold on to that promise, as people who look forward to the glory to be revealed, we realize that that light has already begun to dawn upon us. And that is why even though we live in a world of darkness, that is why as we experience darkness, we know, we know the way. And we are not frozen in fear and we press on we press on in hope because we know the glory of the Lord will drive away darkness until not one shadow remains and to this we say come quickly Lord Jesus Amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that your light has broken into our darkness. For into this sin-infested, sin-cursed world and to hearts that are in bondage to sin, you sent your light, Jesus Christ, in whom we are forgiven, restored, redeemed and we look forward to the glory that will be revealed and so i pray O oh lord that you in your grace will strengthen your people today for your people experience and suffer many darkness your people are afraid they are anxious they are weary they are broken and they experience sorrow in their hearts O oh Lord, let your light shine into their hearts. May they find strength and grace from you. And may they remember that before them stands glory, for which we pray and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.